Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 1, 18 through 26. Chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. We're in the book of Philippians. If you would stand with me as we read God's word. The book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. And you can find this in your bulletin on page 6. This is God's word. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Lift your hands with me as we come to God in prayer. Father, we ask that you would bless us now, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would work in our hearts, that we would receive your word as nourishment, as guidance, as direction, as truth, as authoritative for our lives to govern our lives. Help us to entrust ourselves to you now as we sit under your word. Bless us, we pray, to be not just hearers of your word, but doers of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Most of you know by now that when I went to undergrad, when I studied in college, uh, I studied vocal performance. I went to school to learn how to sing. And when I was in college, I used to spend a lot of time studying the great singers. I would listen to all different kinds of genres. I I trained in classical voice, singing opera kind of stuff, performing Broadway kind of things. But my my favorite of all time is Stevie Wonder. I love Stevie Wonder, and one of the things that I love most about Stevie Wonder is his versatility. One of the things that my my friends and I in my vocal performance uh, major in my class, one of the things we used to marvel at as singers were those vocalists who could sing in any key. Because it it demonstrates a facility, It, it demonstrates a skill to be able to sing in any key. Now, oftentimes when I come in here on Sunday mornings and we're going to prepare for worship, 
uh, I will ask Cheryl to bring the key down because I, I'm not sure I can actually sing in that key. But the really outstanding singers, the ones who really stick out, are the vocalists who can sing in any key. No matter what key you throw at them, they can sing that song. And if we're honest with our own hearts, if we think about our lives, we recognize that oftentimes we lack the facility of being able to sing in every key. And what I mean by that is that oftentimes when circumstances and life challenges come to us, we find that we simply cannot access joy in those circumstances. We cannot access the joy of God in certain seasons of life. It seems elusive. We just can't get a song into our minds. But what I appreciate about our text for today is that we are challenged afresh with the joy of God. We're challenged afresh with the joy of God by someone who had every reason to have no joy. As, as we have been working through the text thus far in our new series on the book of Philippians, we have covered the fact that the Apostle Paul was writing this letter from a jail cell in Rome. He had been persecuted for the faith. He had endured physical afflictions for his preaching of Jesus. He had gone through hard times. But when we get to this text, this book of Philippians, one of the consistent themes that he is driven to communicate to his friends who are worried about him is the theme of joy. He wants them to know that his joy is unassailable because his joy is not located in his circumstances. His joy is not located in what he is trying to have, what he's trying to acquire. His joy is not found in what other people think about him. His joy is not found in his career advancement. His joy, quite simply, is in Christ. And what we're going to explore today is how we can have a sustaining joy. How do you have joy when the latest hashtag has come out? How do you have joy when there are famines taking place globally? How do you have joy when cities are being bombed in the world? How do you have joy when you are going through physical affliction? How do you have joy when you experience losses and disappointments in life? How do you have a sustaining joy? That's what I want to engage today. And I think that the Apostle Paul gives us, he gives us insight into what it looks like to have a buoyancy in life. What does it look like to be buoyant? You know a buoy, no matter how much you push it down, it keeps coming up. No matter what you pour out on it, it keeps coming back up. It surfaces. That's how I want you to think about joy today as we look at the life of the Apostle Paul and his words to his friends in Philippi. And what I want to get through today is this. 
It's a simple, it's a simple concept, but it's this. When Christ is your obsession, joy is your possession. When Christ is your obsession, when you are fixated on him, when you know him, when he is your all in all, when he is your everything, when your heart's loves are all directed toward him, then joy belongs to you. Your joy is unassailable. So let's look at our first point where we see and consider Christ our obsession. Now, look. I went back and forth about whether or not I should use this word, but the more and more I thought about it, the more and more I think it's appropriate. The idea of obsession. There's a lot of talk about obsessive compulsive disorder. It's like you just there's attention to it. You keep coming back to it. And when we look at this text, just an immediate scan of this text, what you see is that Christ keeps coming back to Paul all through this text. In nine verses, Paul mentions Christ six times. And alludes to him probably a seventh time. If you read through this text, Jesus is in every line of the text. And, and, and he sounds out this note of joy from the very beginning. And I want you to notice what he does here because you can miss it. He says, I rejoice even though I'm in prison, even though people are, are trying to bring harm to me through their preaching. They got bad motivations. They're trying to make my life more difficult, but I'm going to rejoice. And then look what he does. Yes. And I will rejoice. That tagline, that coming back around is meant to, it catches us off guard because Paul is acknowledging that his friends are probably asking the question, how can you rejoice in this, in this prison, Paul? He says, yes, I rejoice. No, I'm not, I'm not just I'm not just saying that. Yes, and I will rejoice. But then he goes on to demonstrate how it is he can rejoice, why it is he does rejoice. How can you rejoice, Paul? Look at what he says. For I know. For I know. Grammatically, he's giving you the reason why. Yes, my life as a Christian in this world has brought troubles into my life. Yes, it has made my life more difficult, but I can rejoice. Here's why. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's not talking about getting out of jail. His joy is not found in the prospect of getting out of jail. His joy is not found in some chemistry of life circumstances that are going to come together to make him feel better. When he talks about his deliverance, he's talking about the day when he will see Jesus and he will be able to stand before Jesus with integrity to be able to say my motivations and all of my troubles and my heartaches, all of the difficulties of my life were the result of my ambition to be faithful to you. He's talking about being vindicated. It's the great I told you so. He knows that he will not be ashamed in the end. Because the one in whom he has placed his hope will be true. What he's saying is this. 
He has lifted up his gaze. He's looking at a different horizon that allows him to put his life in the right context. He puts his troubles, he puts the troubles of the world in the right context. And so he has a buoyancy in his life. These troubles are momentary. These afflictions are light compared to the glory to come. He knows his hope. He has a confidence. And if you listen to a lot of the discourse in our culture at this time, you hear a similar kind of sentiment. It goes like this. People talk about the idea of being on the right side of history. People talk about the idea of being on the right side of history. For example, this kind of language has been used with regard to civil rights. To be on the wrong side of history is to ultimately be found in judgment by the future that you were wrong back here, that you were committed to the wrong things. So to say that you're on the wrong side of history is to say that your life has been totally disoriented and you are, you are living a misguided life right now. What Paul is saying in this text is that I am on the right side of history because I'm on the right side of Christ. He's looking to the, the long view, the final chapter of the story, and that is shaping everything for the way that he exists in the right now. And you may not realize it, but he's quoting Job, the book of Job. If you're familiar with that famous sufferer, Job, he lost everything. And after he lost everything, he had some friends that came into his life and they said, ah, I think I, think I know why you're suffering, Job. Because there's some secret sin in your life and God is out to get you because you are being evil. And even though no one can see it right now, God's judging you for it. He has the most unhelpful friends. They, they, they come and they try to give him explanations for why he's going through the suffering he's going through. And then in chapter 13, Job says this. This is what he says. Let me have silence and I will speak. He's about, to, he's about to tell his friends now. And let come, on, let come on me what may. Why should I take my life in my hands? Why should I put my life in my hands? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Keep listening to my words and let my declaration be in your ears. What Job says is this, no matter what you say about my life, I know why I do what I do. No matter how I'm accused by the people around me, I know that I'm going to be able to stand before God with integrity because there is not falseness in me. There's not falseness in my ways. My, my conscience is clear before God because my conscience is guided by what God says is true about the world. He can stand the scrutiny of his friends. And Paul is quoting Job. He says, I'm going through hardship, Job-like trial. But I know that I'm going to be able to stand in that day. Because my life is Christ. This is where he's going in this text. Verse 21, where is he going? He knows he's going to be vindicated. But look at what he says. For to me, verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
Now look, this is the great orienting principle of Paul's life. This is the great control of his life. He knows that his life is so influenced, so controlled by Christ. He's so united to Christ by faith. He's saying, all my motivations, all of my actions, all of my desires, all of my love, all of my behaviors are set upon Christ. They are, they are coming from my relationship to Christ. And he is my life. And so I have confidence. Yet I even have joy. Do you see how he is directing us this morning, friends? Do you see what he's doing with Jesus? The main, the main issue as it pertains to our joy has everything to do with what are we doing with Jesus? What are you doing with Jesus? Where is Jesus? Here's the deal. If you have a pocket-sized Jesus, you will have a pocket-sized joy. Your joy is directly correlated to your Jesus. And if your Jesus is distant in the times of trouble, if your Jesus doesn't care more about injustice than you do, if your Jesus does not have the ability to sustain you through loss and trial and hardship, well, then, of course, you will be joyless. Of course, you will take matters into your own hands and you will become cynical and vengeful. You will have a steady pessimism about life and about other people. You will throw in the towel. You will resign yourself. But notice that Paul is very pastoral in the way that he talks about this. He's not making life into an abstract principle. He's making it about a person. He never detaches Christ from a single benefit of the gospel. All of the $100 words that we use, justification, sanctification, glorification, adoption, expiation, all of these words are simply different ways of explaining what it is to have Christ, who Jesus is for us, what it means to be united to Christ by faith. And Paul connects joy to Christ as well. Joy is not something that you find out there. Joy is not something that you chase after and find apart from Jesus. Paul sums up his life in Christ. Paul, what motivates you? Christ. Paul, what do you really want? Christ. Paul, what do you really love? Christ. Paul, if you had three wishes, what would it be? To know Christ, to love Christ, and to serve Christ. Christ is my life. This is what the apostle's saying. And the question that comes from the text is this. Christian, do you know the excellencies of Christ? Or are the troubles of this life bigger in your mind than the Jesus of Scripture? Are your troubles bigger than him? Well, then you have him wrong. You got the wrong Jesus, to be frank. Amen. This is the deal. You have to have a growing appreciation for all of the greatness and excellencies of Jesus. You know what? One of the most frustrating things is when I'm trying to get, I'm in a hotel. I'm on travel for ministry stuff. And I get to the hotel and the Wi-Fi is janky. Yeah, anyone know what I'm talking about? You get out, you're trying to get your computer online, and then, and then it's, just, it's just slow. It's like it, it can't download what you need. To, you can't even get on a web page. And that is a perfect picture so often of our minds. We don't have the bandwidth to download all of the excellencies of Jesus. 
But God has given his spirit. You see Paul asking his friends to pray for him and to ask that the spirit would be given so that he could download all of the excellencies of Jesus. He wants to have this buoyancy that no trouble, no trial, no evil, no loss, no persecution, no suffering can keep him down forever. He has a buoyancy. He will rise. In every relation that Jesus sustains to his people, he is glorious and precious. You have to understand that if you're going to preach a sermon about joy... It better be a sermon about Christ. He's the only one who can give real, meaningful, lasting joy. He's the only one who can sustain it. And inasmuch as your joy has tailed off, you have lost something of your grip on Jesus and his preciousness and how glorious he is. He is precious in all of his relations to us. He's precious as our creator. He's precious as our Lord, precious as our Redeemer, precious as our righteousness, precious as our pardon, precious as our prophet, priest, and king, precious as our righteousness, precious as our hope, and precious as our joy. This is who he is. And to have less than that is to be missing something of who he is. He is precious. As the husband of his church. He's precious as our friend. Who sympathizes with us. The joyless life says more about us than it says about God. That's what I'm saying. It says more about us than it says about Christ. Do you know what faith is able to say? Faith joyfully exclaims Christ is mine and I have all in him. The father, when he gave Christ, the father did not give you the crumbs off of his table. He gave you the bread from heaven. The father didn't give you a pick-me-up. He gave you a resurrection. The father didn't give you a nice life. He gave you a new life. He didn't come to give you a second chance. He gave you the second Adam. The father doesn't just tolerate you. He celebrates you. Do you know what you have in Jesus? Do you know how he feels about you? Do you know his love for you, his commitment for you? Do you know his love for the world and his commitment to the world and how he governs everything in wisdom? Yeah, we can't see it. We look through a glass darkly, but he's making it all new. He is, he is the God of renewal, and he proves it time and time again. If you have come to Jesus with all of your sin, with all of your need and all of your emptiness, there is not a throb of love in the heart of Christ that is not yours. There's not a particle of peace that is not yours. There's not an ounce of hope or a speck of goodness that does not belong to you if you are in Christ. Faith inherits all of the promises. All of the promises are yes and amen in Christ. He is the fullness of God dwelling bodily. He is our hope. He is the the goodness come from the Father. Everything we were longing for and hoping for in life, he is that. All of the inheritance of God is yours as if you were the sole possessor 
of those things. God loves you as if there were only one of you. That's how he focuses on you. That's how he delights in you. That's how attentive he is to your life. That's how secure you are in him. We need to see in this last phrase, the result of finding your life in Christ. When Christ is your life, when, when Christ is life to you, the result is that you can have a buoyant joy because you can even look the greatest foe in the face, death itself, and know God's sufficiency. Do you see that? He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Our problem is that we see everything else as life. And so dying is a big loss. It's big scary, big scary kind of thing. But for Paul, Christ is life. Christ must be life to you if you're going to have this kind of joy. He must be life to you. And here's the deal. Dying is not gain if Christ is not life. Dying is not gain if Christ is not life. That person did not go to a better place if Christ was not their life. And that's why Paul is, is, is putting this to his friends. He's saying, Christ is my life. You don't have to worry about me. I have joy. All of my suffering will be redeemed. All of my pains and losses will be swallowed up in his victory. He is mine and I am his. If Christ is life to you, that means everything for the kind of joyful life that you live right now. In this one short little phrase, to live is Christ, to die is gain, in that one phrase is unspeakable joy. In that one phrase is indestructible joy. In that one phrase is a sustainable joy. And that leads us to our second point. Joy, our possession. Our problem with joy is not that we find God too big, it's that we find them too small. It's that we find them too small. In Paul, we see that joy is not necessarily the absence of conflicts. It's the presence of Christ. It's not the absence of conflicts. It's the presence of Christ. It's not the absence of dirty diapers. It's the presence of of Christ. It's not the absence of sleepless nights. It is the presence of Christ. All hell can be breaking loose around you, but if Christ is present with you and you know him to be, you are buoyant in your joy. Where does joy come from? It doesn't come in looking for joy. Here's, here's, here's how I want to help guide you. If you're looking for joy... You're running, you're running after an elusive thing. Don't go looking for joy. If you want joy, don't go looking for joy. If you want joy, then go to Christ. It's not in looking for joy that you find it. It's in looking to Christ 
that you get joy. And that is the key that we see in Paul. He's demonstrating some literary artistry here, and you can't see it in the Greek text. But the literary, I mean, you can't see it in the English text, it's in the Greek text. He says, to live is Christ, Christos. To die is gain, kerdas. He's doing a little rhyme like I do every Sunday with my two points. So I have biblical justification for what I'm doing. So you leave me alone, all right? He said, by doing this, by making Christ rhyme with gain, he could have chosen a different word for gain. What he's saying is he's associating Christ with the gain. Christ is the gain. It's a person. It's not an abstract principle. Paul is saying that death for me is to obtain the very person for whom I've been living and longing all my life. I will not be disappointed because all of my life, every ounce of me has been for him and from him and to him and through him. My deepest joy is in him. And I'm going to close with this. You may be familiar with uh, the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Christian during the time of Nazi Germany. And at that time, Christians who were resisting the Nazi regime were Christians who were resisting that unjust government were being uh, systematically uh, oppressed. Uh, the Nazi regime was shutting down the confessing churches of Germany, the churches that were that were saying this is not in line with the Christian faith. If we're proposing that we are Christian in our sensibilities, then this Nazi regime does not line up with the Christian faith. And so the Nazi government started shutting them down. They started locking the doors of their churches. But there was a, a, a group of Christians who were resisting. And Bonhoeffer was one of those Christians that was resisting. And he started an underground seminary in a place called Finkenwald. And in that underground seminary, he was training pastors to resist the injustices of the Nazi regime and to remain faithful to their, to their faith, to Christ. But you can imagine how difficult it was when even their little seminary at Finkenwald was shut down and they were scattered to the winds. Bonhoeffer was, he was told he could not preach, he could not lecture, he could not, he could not do any public ministry. And so one of the things that, that Bonhoeffer did was he, he began to write these circular letters out to his friends, his pastor friends and his students. And one of the most powerful things that comes from the pen of Bonhoeffer has to do with the theme of joy. In Nazi Germany, when injustice was rampant, when the most heinous and atrocious acts in modern history were going down, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was writing to his friends and his students about joy. And this is what he says in one of his letters about joy. He's distinguishing Christian joy, biblical joy, from a false version of joy. And this is what he says. He says, a sort of joy exists that knows nothing at all of the heart's pain, anguish, and dread. It does not last. It can only numb a person for the moment. The joy of God 
has gone through the poverty of the manger and the agony of the cross. That is why it is invincible, irrefutable. It does not deny the anguish when it is there, but finds God in the midst of it. In fact, precisely there. It does not deny grave sin, but finds forgiveness precisely in this way. It looks death straight in the eye, but finds life precisely within it. Do you see what he's saying? Do you see what he's saying? There is a joy that is equivalent to numbing yourself out. It's a shallow joy and it does not last. It's the kind of joy that that, that tries to cover over the deep brokenness and evils of this world. It's going to be okay. It's It's an ungodly levity. But Bonhoeffer is saying there is a joy that is so resonant that it can see through the brokenness and the evil and the heartache and the hardship to see Christ there. Who is Jesus but the man of sorrows, one acquainted with grief? He's there. Do you know that Jesus cares more about the latest hashtag than you do? Do you know that he's there? Do you know that Jesus can identify with the latest hashtag victim because he would have been a hashtag victim? He can sympathize and he can save. And he can motivate his people. He can drive his people to push back the darkness of this world. That's what he's doing. We find God in the heartache, in the brokenness. That that pain and that loss and that suffering that comes to you involuntarily... To know that God voluntarily entered into that for you out of love is able to create a buoyancy that lifts you in your loss. Can you believe that there is a God who voluntarily entered into that kind of loss and lost far greater out of love for you? Can that love lift you? Yes, it can. A God who endured suffering so much more severe than we have voluntarily. When you know the preciousness of Christ, the value that he is, when Christ is your obsession, joy will be your possession. So here's the deal. All right, I'm going to do a second close. Here's a little test. Uh, Vanessa one time gave our kids a little homework assignment. It was a big setup. And she gave the kids this assignment. My daddy is blank. To be fair, she did my mommy is too. And when I saw the opening of the little letter, I was like, oh, great. She's going to say handsome. She's going to say smart, lovable, good, and faithful. She said, my daddy is stressed. I was like, take this little homework assignment somewhere. (laughs) What I'm saying is this. Take stock of what's going on in your house this week and make it your joy to see your joy increasing. Joy is one of the great signposts of the Christian life. That's that's the kind of sign we are to be, a sign of the kingdom that is to come, a sign of the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's who we are to be as God's people. Would you make it your prayer that God would increase your joy as he settles your focus and your fixation on Christ? Would you repent of your joylessness and the ways that you try to find a legitimate excuse at every hand for your joylessness? Would you ask him to help you, to forgive you 
and to renew you, we must repent and receive God's grace and forgiveness afresh and to know Christ is life. And when we do, we will know a sustaining joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you gave your son that we would be a people of joy. We thank you, Jesus, that you willingly and voluntarily became a man of sorrow so that we could become a people of joy. We ask your forgiveness for the ways we have betrayed that gift, the ways that we have tried to justify our cynicism and our joylessness. We pray, God, that you would help us to have such a vision of Christ and his plans for the world and his renewing promise that we would have buoyancy as we live in this world. We pray, God, that you would help us to endure hardship and difficulty in faith. And Lord, we pray that that would be a part of our witness to the world when all hell is breaking loose around us, that Christ is our life. We don't need circumstances to be right. We don't need more money to have joy. We don't need better accoutrements to life in order to be happy. We don't need a better career jump in order to have joy. Lord, we pray that we would be a rooted people, rooted in your joy and love and faithfulness. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We open up for a time of question and answer here. Some neighbors want to say, we got nothing to hide. We want to be helpful to you. We believe that dialogue is necessary in order for us all to grow in faith and to wrestle through the questions of life. So we have time for one question. Does anyone have a question or a clarification that they need based upon what we're talking about throughout this service or something from the sermon? You want to help getting it down to the ground? How do you wrangle with it?